Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. We're going to be going to John chapter 21. Father, would you open our hearts? We love your word. And Jesus, we love you so much. What a Lord you are. What a, what a rabbi and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a savior. What a redeemer. And what a rock. Strengthen us today. You are our provider. We confess that today. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to walk in the freedom that you are our provider. Pray for the grace to get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 21. I'll start at verse 1. Going to go down to verse 11. After these things, all that we've been seeing of these, these uh, early resurrection events, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Tiberias is the city there that got built up in it. As time went on, it, it came to be, take that name, uh, in, in a sense. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus. Who remembers what Didymus means? Twin, twin correct. He's probably Matthew's twin. Uh, and Nathaniel, his other name is Bartholomew, almost certain, of Cana in Galilee. And the sons of Zebedee, who are they? James and John. Right, the sons of thunder, and uh, one of the author, the author of this gospel, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Would you say that, I am going fishing? Yeah. They said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when, Je when the day was now breaking, uh, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right, side, right hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, who is that? John, you recall, John never names himself in this gospel, nor any members of his family. Uh, it's a piety. It's a humility. He simply will not write himself into a gospel like that. And, and so he just refers to himself as all sorts of things. And here's one of those lovely terms. I'm, the, I'm, I'm a disciple Jesus loved. Uh, he said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Peter, Simon Peter heard that this was the Lord, he put, on his, uh, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153 and although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
It's impossible to do what our Lord asks us to do unless he provides for us. I mean, let me, let me underscore that. It is impossible to do what our Lord asks us to do unless he provides for us. His miracle of provision must undergird every form of ministry, no matter how large or small. You may have heard the saying, where God guides, he provides. Let's practice that. Where God guides, he provides. But the fact is, where God guides, he must provide. Because if he doesn't, we won't be able to do what he asks us to do or go where he sends us. When Jesus calls a person to follow him, it is always inconvenient and it is always too expensive. Think about it. You need to go to school. I can't afford it. You need to go on that mission. I don't know where I'll get the money. I need to do this. You can't do it. You need to take time and, and, and uh, lead something. I can't. I have to work. Think about it. There's always a financial component. If he doesn't provide, I won't go forward. This is a, a foundational lesson in every one of our lives that he is our provider. We will always need his help to pay the bills. That doesn't mean we're all supposed to quit our jobs and only do spiritual ministry and expect others to support us. But it does mean that if we are genuinely doing his will, he is committed to providing everything we need one way or another. The right job can be as much a gift from God as an unexpected check in the mail. There's no way to learn this lesson without doing it. It's like swimming. I mean, you can read all the books on swimming you want, but at some point, you've got to get in the water and start paddling, right? And it's then that you learn. Uh, every one of us will have our events. Every one of us will have our moments where we have to learn this lesson. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a key one in my life. You've heard some of this before, but I enjoy telling it, so it's, you know, whatever. Um, years ago, Mary and I were asked to... We, planted a church in Tempe, Arizona. And this is like, I didn't even know anybody that lived in Arizona. So we're, we're starting off. But the denomination had this old building, a 1929 building. It was a complete wreck. Um, the, the building had a parapet walls. You know what those are? Those high walls. And then there's a ceiling, a roof down below. It's like a, well, you think Arizona has no, no rain. But when they do get it, they get cloudbursts. It comes and fills. And at some point, a cloudburst had filled that thing like a swimming pool. And the weight had crushed the whole entire structure. The, 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 the trusses had all cracked and given way. And the entire uh, pool full of water had dumped down into the auditorium. Uh, it had also been uh, uh, owned, or run by a cult group, uh, which I ashamedly say had come out of Foursquare. Um, and, and they, they had really left a really sour taste in people's mouth, and they had just damaged this building and, 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 and uh, ruined it. They'd cut through support beams. It was, it was ridiculous. And this is what they offered me. And they said, would you like this building? And, uh, and they said, now we have $20,000 to help you fix the roof. That, you know, that wouldn't buy tar paper, you know, and thank you. And I said, but of, co of course not. Why would anybody in their right mind want that building, you know? By the way, I didn't mention this. There was no parking at any time on one street and no parking from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, every day of the week uh, on the other street and five parking places. 
And then they sold a parsonage, this little parsonage next to it, off, and, and to the, the lot line went right to the paint. There was no setback whatsoever. That's illegal, but they'd done it. And uh, so we had this, this mess. Why would anyone in their right mind want this thing? I had taken along, or they had come along, a couple of uh, students from the Bible college. We, I'd taught at the Bible college, and then the Lord had said, I need you to do what I've told you to do. But that's part of the story, actually. I had been afraid to step out and plant a church. I just was terrified of the idea. And so I had always hedged around and avoided it. And then there came this moment. The Lord said, I want you to plant a church. And I said, where? He said, I don't care. Just do what I've asked you to do. He did. I could go anywhere I wanted. But I had to go to a city and I had to build on no other man's foundations. Those were two things that he'd spoken to me. And I knew I hadn't fulfilled them. So we ended up there in Tempe, Arizona. And we're, we're starting out with this thing. And uh, so I had two Bible college students that come along. And they, they called me up one day and they said, Pastor, have you, what do you think about that building? And I said, what do you mean, what do I think about the building? The build, we were meeting in, a, in, element, in elementary school. And I said, it's a wreck. No parking at any day, time on one side. No parking from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. on the other side. Five parking places. What do you mean? I, well, have I thought about it? And, he, and then, then they, they asked the horrible question. Have you prayed about it? There's some things you don't need to pray about, right? <laughs> God's not stupid. So I said, well, no, I haven't prayed about it. And they said, would well, you just pray about it? We're out here praying. All right, I'll pray. <laughs> and, I, and I just, I literally, right where I was, just dropped to the floor, face down. And I said, you don't want that building, do you? <laughs> I didn't. Yeah. I said, that's exactly what I said. And he, he went silent on me. And I, I'm down there, and I could just feel it. And then I, then I almost laughed. I said, why, you like that building, <laughs> don't you? And I was, and, and I said, what do you want me to do with this? And he said, he said what kind of God am I? And I, then I had, the right, I had the right answer. I mean, he gave it to me. I said, you're, you're, you're the God who opens doors no man can open and shuts doors no man. Uh, shuts doors no man can open and opens doors no man can shut. And he said, that's right. And he said, so your job is to knock on the door. And if I open it, you go through. If I don't, you're done. Can you do that? I said, I can do that. I had $20,000 to work with, so I called the denomination, and I said, there's no way this is going to fix a roof, but I feel like I'm supposed to try it and move forward. Can I use the $20,000 in the first step? They said, yes, you can. So I go down to the city, to the planning department, and I, and I say to them, I want to rebuild this building. They could not have been more rude. Now, see, I didn't know about the history of this church. I didn't know about the cult, and uh, then they thought I was it. And so they practically spit on me. I mean, they could not have been more rude. I came home going, there are a bunch of atheists. I can't believe that group. You know, what a city this is. <laughs> and I, I came home. And um, then I said, well, what do I need to do to the guy? And, and he said, well, you need, a, you need a structural engineer. And I didn't know what one was. 
Um, and I said, what's, you know, what's that? He said, well, you got to have one that tells you how to build it. And I, I said, well, you, can you give me the name of somebody? He said, well, of course not. And I said, well, then just tell me the first name that comes to your mind. <laughs> I did. This was the over-the-counter. And he says, all right, Tom. And he gives me this name. So I went home and I opened the yellow pages. The people, that was a book that you used to have yellow, uh, phone numbers in. <laughs> uh, uh. So... And I look in the yellow pages, and, and there's this little line item, just the guy's name and a phone number. I mean, just the smallest thing in, in, the, in, the, in the yellow pages. And I call this number, and I get, the, I get this guy on the phone. And I, and I say, hi there, uh, my name's Steve Shell, and I, I need a structural engineer. And uh, I got this church I'm, I'm trying to uh, redo. It's an old 1929 church. And uh, um, he says, and then the guy on the other end goes, how did you get my name? And I said, well, the guy at the city, you know, I said, well, do you know my name? And he gave you your name. And he says, and so I tell him a little more about it. And he says, he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll come by on, on Saturday morning. I'm going duck hunting. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at it. So Saturday morning, I'm out there waiting. And here comes this guy with Ducks Unlimited on the back of his butt truck, you know. <laughs> he gets out. And we don't even go over. We just stands there and looks at it uh, from the other side. And. Boy, I could tell he is really smart. Um, and, and he knew what to do and you know, talks it through, looks at the thing, and finally he says, okay, I'll do it. Um, and he said, I'll do it for you for nothing. And he, he says, uh, I just want you to pay my draftsman. He said, here, um, uh, you, may need, you, you may want some reference on me. And he hands me this, this, this glossy portfolio. He's the guy that does the skyscrapers down in downtown Seattle, the Seattle Metro Center and the big Goodyear plant. He's one of the top structural engineers in the entire southwest United States. And he happens to do this for churches. Who knew? I could go on and on. I'll just tell you the course of it. That building not only got built, we bought the parsonage back. We remodeled and did everything. Now, it took, took me and my, my, one of my, the, the young youth minister that came with us and, and all, and an old uh, retired uh, carpenter. And it took us three years, almost two and a half years, to, to redo that whole thing and buy it back. It was absolutely gorgeous. When it was done, uh, it was so, so beautiful. And it's right in Old Town Tempe, just two blocks from the university. Uh, the city leadership, top leadership, wanted to hold their planning meetings in our building. And so I'd leave the coffee pot on, and I'd leave the lights on, and I'd have the top leaders in the city meeting in my building. They, by now, they love us, and I love them. Great city, as a matter of fact. Uh, but boy, what a... Mary wanted me to tell you one more story. So we needed power to this thing. They wanted three-phase electric. Do you know what that is? 270 or something like that. It's cheaper, it's more economical, it's better electricity for, the, for that kind of building. Um, and uh, so I called the, the electrical company and I said, what will it cost to get three-phase electric? Well, this guy comes out and he says, it's, it's 5,000 bucks. He says, we've got to bring it up several blocks from here, you know, and run it to your place. And then he comes, he's looking at the thing and the, and the telephone pole right by our building has honey running out of a crack in it because bees are in the in the in the trunk of this thing and it's got this peg in the thing that says 1929 so it's this old telephone pole with honey coming out of it oh. and the and the and the, the electricity guy looks at this thing and he goes 
He says, man, we got to replace this thing. He says, we'll bring you the power for nothing. <laughs> now, I got story after story after story. Let me tell you what it did to me. If you, that fear of poverty, that fear of there's not enough was broken. If you were to say to me today, right now, Steve, go paddle a church with nothing. I'm going, fine. Let's do it. I had to swim. I had to get in the water and swim before I found the power of God to provide. And so do you. And if you sit on the edge going, oh, it looks cold. <laughs> you'll never get in. And you'll, if you don't get in, you won't learn. There's a step God will put in front of you. A door he'll ask you. This is how it'll be. One door, he'll just say, knock on the door. Just knock. If I open it, go through. If you and I are not confident that God will care for our needs and the needs of our family, fear will inevitably hold us back. We will always be waiting for enough money to come in before we step out. Look, I have heard, how many times have I heard people say, well, I want to work and become wealthy and then I'll serve God. I promise you, if you do that, you never serve God. You will never have enough money. Money will eat you alive. You serve one master or another. You cannot use that approach. Now, are there wealthy people who serve God? Absolutely. But they didn't enter it that, with that attitude. You cannot do that. You, 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 you move on, the, on what he's put in front of you, and God will take care of you. And there is a danger in the other direction as well. There are people who presumptuously run up huge bills claiming Jesus told them to step out in faith and do that. And frankly, they're often unable to pay those bills. And they leave people with a very bad impression about Christianity. The question is, did God really say that? And the proof that he did will be his miraculous provision. Jesus doesn't promise to pay the bills we generate from our own desires. Only those bills that result from doing what he asked us to do. The resurrected Jesus appeared to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee to teach them this lesson. He had already given them their assignment, a promise of empowerment, and the spiritual authority to preach a gospel full of forgiveness and warning. But they still needed another promise. They needed to hear him assure them that he would provide for them and their families. If they became his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the most remote parts of the earth. Actually, he had already made that promise years earlier when they first began ministering with him. But he would soon ascend into heaven and they would have to walk in a far deeper level of faith in the future. So he performed that miracle again so that when their faith was tested, they would remember that that breakfast in Galilee. Say breakfast in Galilee. He was making a memory. He was putting something in their hearts they would never forget. John included this passage in his gospel so that you and I would hear the same promise. The promise of miracle provision that Jesus made to those seven men was not only for them. It is a promise he makes to each of us as well. Let's listen carefully. I want to take you back. I want you to feel this. You've got to, you've got to understand where, where this is coming from. And then it'll, then it'll really take hold in our hearts. After being raised from the dead, Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over the next 40 days. The Bible records 11 such appearances. And then I list them there for you. And then I'll skip down. 
If we include Jesus' later appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus, there were 12. Now, there were probably many more, but those are the 12 that we find in the Bible. The, the disciples remained in Jerusalem for at least eight days after the resurrection and then traveled north to the Galilee region as Jesus and the angels had instructed them to do. You remember his instruction? He said, the angels, what did they say to the women first off? They said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And, and then they said, he's not here, he is risen. And then he is instructing you to go to Galilee where he will meet you there. Tell the disciples, remember this? He, they said that, and then Jesus, when he appeared, he said the same thing. They stayed in Galilee for an undisclosed amount of time, returning to Jerusalem at least 10 days before Pentecost. The Lord may have sent them north for their own safety, or to let them spend time with their families before the explosive growth of the church began. If, as we've noted, John wrote his gospel after the, the other three gospels had been written, he would have been familiar with their reports about the appearances of Jesus. Look, you have to keep this in perspective. John's gospel it reports different things, but it's for a reason. The other three had been written. He knew what they wrote. And then John, this, this eyewitness, this, this, this great apostle, says there's things that have been missed, and I think there's things that are being confused about who Jesus is. And so he writes his gospel to make sure we understand that he is the divine son of God who became a man. He just, just teaches us that so strongly. And then he brings in these particular miracles that he wants us to see that the others omitted. And here's one. He says, oh, you got to hear this story. You have to hear what he did. And so he includes this. There was one particular appearance, which the others omitted that John wanted to report in detail because it contained a very symbolic miracle and a very instructive restoration of one of the disciples. It was the Lord's appearance to seven of his disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The group included Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, John, and two unnamed disciples. John may, not, may have admitted the final two names because those individuals were not members of the original 12, and therefore their names would not have been widely recognized. These seven men had obviously followed the Lord's instruction to return to Galilee, but it seems that once they arrived, they did not encounter Jesus right away. They felt uncertain as to what they should do while they were waiting. Peter decided to generate income for his family while he waited. That is not a wrong thing to do. That is not a sinful thing to do. There's all kinds of people uh, who write things that make Peter really a bad boy because he, he, uh, he, he went fishing, you know, he's supposed to just sit there, you know. And, and, and he said, I'm not, he's not here, I'm going go to go fishing. So he said to the others, I, go, I am going to fish. And they replied, we are also coming with you. During the years when they were ministering with Jesus, each of the 12 disciples had received a portion of the funds that were donated to Jesus' ministry. Did you understand that? That's what it was to be with one of the 12. Uh, not, you, he was asking 12 people to travel with him and leave their livelihoods. They would be his, his partners in his ministry. And you have the reference I give you in Acts 117 there, uh, the, the state, Peter makes a statement. He says, we all had our allotment. We all had our portion in this ministry, meaning they were being cared for. So when Jesus tells them, come with me, 
He did not just sort of have them abandon their families, their wives and children. You go, where did daddy go? You know, this kind of, and then they're all following Jesus. You know, you have people picture it like that. Because if you don't get it, if you don't understand the scenario, when you come to Luke 5, or, and I'll show you that passage in a little bit, when you come to that and he comes down to the water, there they are in their boats, and then he says, follow me, you know, kind of thing, and they all follow him and leave their nets, and, you th- and it's, it's like they're just abandoning their families. That isn't the first time they met Jesus at all. They met him first of all when? Somebody tell me. At the Jordan River. John gives you the full chronology. And so they first met him. Six of them were there at the Jordan River with with John the Baptist. When Jesus came walking by. Who were the first two disciples to actually see Jesus? And and, and really know who he was? Andrew and John, the author of our gospel. They're standing beside John the Baptist. They were already Uh, strongly religious men following this great prophet who's calling Israel to repentance. There they are helping him right beside him. And he calls, as as Jesus walked by, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And then later, Jesus comes by again and John says, this is the one upon whom I've seen the Spirit come and remain. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And they turned and left John and followed Jesus. Remember? And then, and then Andrew and John, they went and got their brothers. You've got, uh, who's, who's Andrew's brother? Peter. He gets Peter. And then, and then I, John doesn't mention James, but he always leaves him out. I imagine James is like, come on, put me in somewhere. Uh, so, James, then Philip shows up, remember? And then Nathaniel, you're hearing those names right now. This is, so when, G, so when here's how it worked. After they'd, after they'd uh, come to Jesus, they walk back up together to the Galilee. Jesus goes over to Nazareth to go home and talk to his family about what's changing. That's where you have him in the synagogue in Nazareth. That's where you have the wedding at Cana. All of this, he's over there. Philip's from over there too. Uh, the other men go home and they're with their families and they start fishing again. Of course they do. Nobody said otherwise. Then he, Jesus moves back down to Capernaum and begins ministering and at some point comes out to the lake, preaches from one of their boats and then says now and then does this miracle. And what was the miracle? They fished all night and caught nothing. And he says to them, and here is daytime, he says, go out into the deep, put your nets down. And they said, Master, we've fished all night and caught nothing, but at your command we'll do it. Yeah. And out they go, put down this net, and they get so many fish, they have to call for the other boat to come and help them, and the nets are breaking with this massive thing. What's he saying? I'll provide for you. These fish, you, you sell them, you, you take them home, you sell them in the market, you put them in live wells. They had these great stone live wells. They found this as the, as the lake, uh, sea, of, sea of Galilee, Lake of, of Galilee, Chinneret, goes down. They have found these live wells all along the shore where they would dump the fish. So they keep them, they keep them fresh till they need them. And so this is, this is revenue. This is huge revenue. He says, now, follow me. I'll provide for you. Make, does this make sense? Yeah. 
all right? During the years where they were ministering, each received a portion of the funds. Their families at home still needed support while they were traveling. But following the crucifixion, that, that source of support must have ended. So Peter's suggestion was very practical. It would provide some income for, for all of them. John tells us that they all went out to the lake and got into the fishing, uh, fishing boat. A first century fishing boat which was discovered in the mud of the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in 1986 measured 24 feet long by 7 feet wide. They have found a boat that is unquestionably from this first century period. It was on the lake when Jesus was. This is, we don't know that it was the boat he was in or anything, but it's exactly uh, the fishing boat from his time. And they found it right there in the mud, and they've, they've got it out so you can see it. It's remarkable. So it would easily have held that many men at once. Before becoming Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John had owned fishing boats. And those boats may still have been owned by their families. If so, Peter may have led them to his own boat. John's description of this event indicates that they spent the night fishing with a trammel net. I did not know what a trammel net was till I did this. Which is a net made up of three different layers, two large mesh walls about five feet high, with a net of finer mesh sandwiched in between. Can you picture that? You've got two large, large mesh nets with this much finer net. It's a gill net in the middle, as far as I can tell. And so the fish swim into this thing and get caught in the middle. They, can, they run these things out like about 100, 100 feet worth of net is out there uh, that they put. And they put it down at night uh, and let the fish swim into the thing. Um, the top was held by floats, the bottom edge weighted by sinkers. It would have been left hanging in the water during the night and, and hauled up in the, mo the following morning. But that night they caught nothing. At the first light of dawn, as it turned the sky gray, the disciples became aware that someone was standing on the beach. They were only a hundred yards offshore, so they could see the shape of a man. But there was not enough light to recognize who it was. The stranger called out to them, Boys, you haven't anything to eat, have you? That's what it says. It doesn't say anything about fish. It is only by sort of extrapolating you get to the idea of fish. It's the, the word, the, the word means to eat, therefore, to, to, to provide for eating. So he says, you don't have anything to eat, do you, boys? That's, that, that had to, I mean, he's going right at it. They replied, no. The stranger told them to cast the net into the area on the right side of the boat. And then said, you'll find a catch. They did as they were told. Perhaps thinking the stranger on the shore had seen fish roiling the water there. As soon as they obeyed, the net trapped so many fish, it became too heavy to draw toward the boat. Funny thing happened last time I was in Israel. When we go to this place where the, the Jesus boat is, uh, there's, it's also where we get into a boat and sail on the lake. And, and it's, well, it's a wonderful part of things. But there's this jetty that goes out and then a dock. And as we were walking out this last time, on the left side of the jetty was a group of, there was some fishermen with their lines in. And on the other side of the jetty, as you looked over, there were hundreds of fish. <laughs> and you wanted to say, cast your line on the right side. 
it was really comical. They're over there fishing, nothing. Over here, and I, I mean literally, uh, there are hundreds of fish that you can see from looking down. <laughs> Do you know what kinds of species are native to that lake? Tilapia. There's a species of tilapia. That's what they have. Um, uh, and sardines. Now, they have other kinds of fish in the water, particularly catfish. But those, why would a, why would a Jewish fisherman not want a catfish? Not kosher. What's, what's, what's it lacking? Doesn't have scales, doesn't have, you know, I guess it's got fins of some kind. I, I have heard that they called the catfish there a snake. Remember his parable, or his, his word where he says, if you wouldn't, well, you wouldn't, if your son asked for a fish, you wouldn't give him a Snake, yeah, one of them says. And, and the term, that was a nickname for the catfish. When we, when we go there, we, we stay on the, on the south shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there's, there's reeds there uh, uh, nearby. And in the early morning, you can hear these catfish eating whatever they eat uh, all through those reeds. And they're huge. I thought there was a dog in there or something. It was just this enormous kaboof, kaboof. And the, and the reeds are just shaking and shaking. I think, what's in there? You know, like it's catfish, these great big catfish. So those you don't eat. The two kinds are the tilapia and the sardines. John refuses to name himself in this gospel, so he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the first person on the boat to realize that who that person on the shore must be. He must have remembered that this type of miracle had happened to them before. In a similar way, Jesus had commanded them to lower their nets in a certain place. And even though his command had seemed illogical, they had done so. And when they did, the net enclosed so many fish that it began to break. First, he gave them a miraculous catch of fish. Then he called them to leave their nets and become his disciples. Notice what I just read. That's, that's key to this. First, he gave them a miraculous catch of fish. Then he called them to leave their nets and become his disciples. I'll, 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 make, I'll make that point later. At that moment, as his arms felt the weight of that enormous catch, John must have known not only who it was who was standing on the shore, but why he performed that particular miracle again. The fish, that were, the fish in that net were not only a provision for the moment, they were a promise that Jesus would provide for them in the future as they went forth as his apostles. Verse 7, John turned to Peter and simply said, it is the Lord. And Peter, because Peter had experienced that same miracle with John years earlier, those words produced a similar response in him. In spite of all his weakness and confusion, Peter's love for Jesus was unquestionable. Once he realized who it was that was standing there, he longed to be near him as soon as possible. He had no intention of waiting while the boat dragged those fish to shore. But, the, but first, he had to cover himself properly. Fishing in those waters often required someone to dive in to hold the nets to prevent the fish from escaping. And evidently, Peter was the person doing that at the time. So he was only wearing something tied around his waist. He was not naked. No Jewish man is going to be standing there 100 yards offshore naked. He's got, he's got things tied around him, but he's, he's swimming. He's in the water all the time. Out of respect for Jesus, he quickly put on a coat and before diving into the water and swimming to the beach. Isn't that kind of a sweet touch to that? 
And Peter's not going to come up like this. So he grabs his coat, wraps himself, jumps in the water. I mean, that big wet coat. But he's going to be modest in Jesus' presence. That's just really beautiful. Verse 8. The other disciples got into the small boat used for placing the nets and ferrying passages to land and slowly towed that heavy net about 100 yards to shore. When they got out of the boat, they saw a campfire which had already burned down to hot coals. It says that. With a fish cooking on it. Probably on a stick. You know, sort of angled over it. Uh, roasting. And bread waiting nearby. Then Jesus spoke to them. He said, now bring some of the fish which you caught. The one roasting on the fire would not be enough for all of them. Peter went back to the boat and drew the net closer to land. John tells us that the fish were large, which means they were tilapia rather than sardines. So Peter probably took only seven or eight of them to Jesus. When we go to Israel, we always have, a, there a re, there's a restaurant where we have what's called St. Peter's Lunch. And they serve us a tilapia. Now you have your choice, but one of the, one of the, the choices, which I think is the bravest and probably the most authentic, is they give you a whole fish just deep fried. So there it is looking at you, you know, <laughs> pins and all. Um, and I just think you ought, if you can do it and get it down and keep it down, just do it. Um, and and you're, you're experiencing the, 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 that tilapia. That is the fish that they were eating right there. That's the fish they were roasting. You can also get just fish fillets or if you're really not with it, you can have chicken. So, <laughs> but I, I suggest the fish. John also wants us to understand the magnitude of this miracle. When the fish were counted, there were 153. Enough so each of those men could take some home to their family. And there was one more aspect to the miracle that John mentions. Even with all the weight and pressure of so many fish being towed to shore, the net was not torn. Not one fish was lost. Uh, there's a whole sermon in that. There's a beautiful sermon in that as well. The first miraculous catch. I'm going to take you back and just have a quick look at Luke 5. If you've, if you've got your Bible, go with me to Luke 5. First 11 verses. I already told you uh, uh, why, where we are and how we got there. This is where Jesus comes back to Capernaum. He comes out to the, to the shore. He sits in one of their boats and preaches to the crowds. He's already healing, already doing wonderful things. And um, he, he sat in Simon's boat. And then when he finished, verse 4, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break in that case. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat, that's James and John, for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's all. How big was that boat? 24 feet by 7. And you've got so many fish in this thing that you're down to the gunnels. That's amazing. Uh, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Boy, this is a, that, you, you want to talk to a fisherman? This is how you do it. 
for, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which he, they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. See, I said they were in business together. Do not fear. Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This was not some hidden hypnotic march. This was, this was something they fully understood. He provided a huge revenue burst right then for their families. And then said, come, and I'll provide for you, which he did. He gave them an allotment for their families the whole time. To understand the impact that miracle had on those disciples, we have to recognize that this was the second time some of them had seen it. After meeting Jesus at the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing, six of them had traveled back to Galilee with him and then returned home. They had families to support, so naturally they went back to work. For at least four of them, their work was fishing. So when Jesus came down to the lakeside to call them to leave home and travel with him, he provided a miraculous catch of fish to show them that he would provide the funds needed to support their families while they were gone. Some, if not all of them, were married and probably had children, so it was not right for them to walk out and leave them without a husband or a father working to meet their needs. That would have been ungodly. It would have been wrong for them just to abandon their families and follow some rabbi. But that miraculous catch of fish was Jesus' way of telling them that God was capable of caring for them and their families. So when they left everything and followed him, they were not being irresponsible to their duties. They were trusting him to keep his promise. And he did. For two and a half years, they received an allotment of funds from the donations made to Jesus' ministry. The second miraculous catch. If we understand the meaning of the first miraculous catch, we will understand the meaning of the second Miraculous catch. Jesus was repeating a promise. Even though the crucifixion and resurrection had changed the way they would do ministry together. And even though he would soon ascend into heaven. He would still be their provider. He was going to send them out into ministry again. And he was going to provide for them and their families as surely as he had before. Do you hear the lesson that's being taught? This is an important lesson. No sooner... Did those ropes grow taut in John's hands as he felt the massive weight in the net? Then he instantly knew who that stranger was and why there were so many fish in the net. Once again, Jesus had come to the lakeshore to call them to leave their nets and to promise that he would provide for them. Can't you imagine that moment? They're this stranger, all, all they know is a stranger's on the shore. So they, 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 they cast on the right side of the boat. Or they pull this thing out on the right side of the boat. And all of a sudden, John goes to pull this thing, and it's, it's, it's as stiff as steel. There's, there's, there's huge weight on the net. And he's just down like this. And he suddenly knows, I know who this is. And I know why he's here. He turns to Peter. It's the Lord. Peter looks up, grabs his coat, wraps it. And just jumps in. He's come to call him. One of the many obstacles to obedience. When God asks us to do something. Is the tendency in all of us to look at ourselves. Evaluate our ability to do what he's asked. And conclude that we aren't capable of doing it. We assume that, that we must have heard him incorrectly. 
and try to drive his call out of our minds. How many times have we gone to rebuke you, devil? You know, and it's not the devil at all. It's the Lord. God's plans frighten us and may even make us angry. We wonder why he's pressing us to do something that is so certain in our minds to end in failure. And there's always a financial component to it. There is always a financial component to it. Part of the problem will always be that we don't have the money and can't see any way of getting it. That's why God will always show us his faithfulness in some tangible way before he asks us to step out and trust him. Think of all the miracles he showed to Israel in the wilderness before bringing them to the borders of the promised land and asking them to drive out the Canaanites. Do you follow this? He has, even, even while there's still slaves in, Israel, in, in Egypt, he does 10 amazing miracles, plagues, as he, has, as he demonstrates his power. He turns the Nile red with blood. He, this huge uh, locust infections and uh, infestations and all, all of this stuff. He has shown his mighty power to them. And he says, now follow, come. And out they go into the wilderness. How, you can't take a million and a half people into the wilderness. Uh, for, this is crazy. Out they go. And, and, uh, and, and they come to a sea and it parts. They, he, they haven't done anything other than just follow at this point. He's showing himself faithful. By the way, if it's where I'm, I'm almost certain it was, it's 11 miles across. Solomon put a pillar on each side where the, where the crossing took place. And it still stands on one side and the, and the base of it, because the Saudi government cut it down, is on the other. No joke. Anyway, he opens, if he can open an ocean... You can probably trust this guy. <laughs> could he feed him in the wilderness? Yeah. How'd he do it? Yeah. He could he give him water? Yep. How'd he do it? Yeah. In the long run, it's their fault. They were only supposed to be there about two years. But they're there 40. And he fed them and gave them that and even meat for 40 years. Before they come to the borders of the promised land, and he says, now go in and take it. And then the old generation had, had refused, remember? He, after, after all those wonderful miracles they'd seen, they come to the borders and they say, no, we'll all die. And the Lord's thinking, what more do I have to do to show you I am faithful? I've just opened an ocean for you, for heaven's sake. People, he does this for us. I'm, I believe that in every one of our lives, he has shown us already that he's our provider. Has he not? Yes. Has he cared for you? Yes. Have you had miracle after miracle? Yes. All right. He wants you to learn from those miracles. Those, those aren't haphazard. Those are him just demonstrating his faithfulness to you. Because he will always, he's always taken us forward. He's always taken us in. He's always taking us into new areas. And it will always have a faith, a faith element in which I've got to trust him as my provider. Think of all the miracles he showed Israel in the wilderness before bringing them into the borders uh, and to the borders of, of the promised land and asking them to drive out the Canaanites. He didn't ask the, them to part, partner with him in that impossible task until he had first proved that with him they could do the impossible. 
And he does the same with us over and over. He shows us that he is able to care for us before he asks us to follow him down a path that will require a regular flow of sustaining miracles. Then with enough history to prove that he is able and willing to care for us. He will ask each of us to step out of the safety of the, of the old ways we, we provided for ourselves and enter into some new level of service that requires us to give more of our time and energy to others. And if we'll take that step, we'll discover miraculous dimensions of his provision making up the difference for what we could no longer provide for ourselves. In fact, we find that he is surprisingly generous with us. That morning on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples didn't catch 50, uh, pardon me, seven fish. They caught 153. Every time God leads you forward, every time God asks you to do something, every time you're going to move in him, there will be a financial component to it. There will be an element where if I do that, oh my goodness, you'll, you'll, you'll realize the cost of the thing. And God is promising you, I'll make it up. Um, years ago, I had, I, Mary and I, went, I, was, I was going to seminary, and I was a youth minister being paid all of $100 a month. I think I started at 50 but I, I, they brought it up because I was worth every penny of it. <laughs> and uh, Meanwhile, Mary was a nurse, and so she was... She was bringing in uh, the main part of our income. After uh, I was coming to the end of that time, I got a phone call. Uh, I happened to be home when the phone rang. And it was, the, um, it was the head of the medical training department at the University of Honolulu. And uh, the woman on the line said, uh, she said, uh, is this Mr. Shell? I said, yes, it is. She said, uh, now, Mr. Shell, we would like to offer your wife... Uh, we want, we've heard a great deal about her. She'd already been offered that position by Pasadena City College. They wanted her to head up the training for the EMT program uh, that they had at this college. She'd, tur she'd turned that down, and now, but they had told Honolulu about her. So Honolulu calls me up and says, uh, we, we want your, your wife. It said, Mr. Shell, please do not stand in her way. Um, they were offering... Well, let me just say it would be way over six figures right now. It was a big, it was the salary to lead the program. It was like, you know, and I'm, I'm earning a hundred bucks a month. And, <laughs> and she, they said, Honolulu, Hawaii is a beautiful place to live. You'd like it, Mr. Shell. You would like it here. Uh, and, and I said, well, I, I, that will be her decision. I will certainly tell her you called and have her call you back and all of this, you know, quick. <laughs> So Mary calls, and they, they offer her the job. And uh, she then goes to prayer. And the Lord says, no. And she wanted to do it. And, and I would have let her do it. I mean, I would have gone with her. If that's what, that's what, if that's, <laughs> what am I going to do? They're going to make me live in Hawaii and make me rich. I, you know, <laughs> do what you have to do. You're a husband, and you love your wife, right? Um, but, uh, but, I, but she, the Lord speaks to her and says, no, you're not to go. Within a few months, we were pregnant with our first child. Now, the, the story goes on. We, then I got called to a church in San Diego as an assistant pastor. 
And Mary loves nursing. She's an ex- excellent nurse, but the Lord, Lord speaks to her again and says, I want you to stay home. I want you to stay and, and, and raise your daughter and uh, just live on, on, on Steve's. We start that, and as time goes, as, and then we left and went and church planted and have nothing coming in to speak of, just a you know, small amount. But we feel that's what the Lord said. All through that, we, we ate a lot of lentils. <laughs> Mary made, sewed the clothes for the kids. Uh, we had foam rubber couches <laughs> and, 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 and cement blocks for our bookshelves and, 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 and hand-me-down furniture. And we were fine. We were fine. We always had enough. We were always taken care of. And we felt, this would see, you see Mary's call? I want you to stay home and I want you to raise those children. This is not a guilt trip. This was her, she, the Lord spoke it to her. So she's staying home. Are we out of money? She's the, she's the lion's share of our income. She can go out and triple our income. But we're not to do it. There's a financial component. We were, going, we were to invest in these disciples. Some of you will be told by the Lord, I want you to retire early. I want you to, I've, I've already had several of you tell me this. It just so touches me. You're come, they've come, you've come up and said to me, Pastor, um, we just feel that we can make it and we want to retire and we want to use the rest of our life serving Jesus full time. Now that's a huge financial component, isn't it? It's a step of faith, isn't it? And it's also just released people in the, in, in, with all the maturity they have to take and invest in the Lord and, and use another 10, 20 years of solid ministry. Uh, some of you are, are, will stay home and homeschool. You could be out making big dollars. You could beat it out there doubling or tripling the income, but you're going to feel called to stay home and teach your children. Uh, that's, it's, you have, this has to be your call. It has to be what the Lord tells you to do. But I'm just telling you, it, they're, walking with the Lord will always have a financial component, which requires me to say, but then you'll make up the difference. If you were to ask my children to this day, do you feel poor? Not one of them will say yes. They didn't even know they're poor. Sometimes they've heard me preach and they go, were we poor? <laughs> they have. Were we poor? Well, technically. We were poor by choice. We were poor because we felt this was what we were to do. But we weren't poor in spirit. This isn't, this isn't poverty. This is obedience and living by faith. I'll tell you the lessons I've learned. I would never in a million years go back to relying on myself. I now have, the thing that he broke particularly in Tempe was that I could trust him absolutely that if he tells me to do something, he will provide for us. It was stunning. I'm not the same person anymore. He will teach you. He doesn't just say, leave your nets, follow me. He will show himself faithful to you. And then he'll say, now, will you trust me to continue at a deeper level to provide for you? Once we start walking in God's miraculous provision, there's really no going back. Peter, James, and John had been professional fishermen, and apparently they'd been in business together before meeting Jesus. But when they tried to go back to their old ways of making a living, it didn't work. They fished all night and caught nothing. That, too, was symbolic. Jesus called out, 
Boys, you haven't anything to eat, have you? He knew they had failed because God's blessing over their old way of providing for themselves was gone. It had moved. Now, God wanted to provide for them another way. What had worked in the past wouldn't work in the future because their assignment had changed. You hear this? There's actually, a, there's actually a necessity to it. When the Lord's calling you forward, his provision moves forward too. And so if I refuse and hold back in fear, it's as though the cloud moves on and I'm back here. It's not a good place to be. I need to follow him because he will move there. They were being sent out and there wouldn't be time to go fishing. No one can take a million and a half people into the wilderness for 40 years and survive. But Moses did. No one can walk away from their source of income and still have their bills paid. But these fishermen did. And it will never look like you or I have the resources to do what Jesus calls us to do either. Every step of obedience will require us to trust that where he guides, he provides. He will always begin by proving to us that he can. And then we'll hear his voice calling us to do something that seems impossible. Go to school. Retire early. Stay home with the kids. Go on a mission. Lead a ministry. Support a missionary. Whatever it is. Of course, we'll test what we believe we've heard to make sure it was really him. But once we've got that inner conviction that it would be disobedient not to try, I like the way that got said. Look at that. Once we get the inner conviction that it would be disobedient not to try. When you're walking in faith, there's always an uncertain element to this. I think this is God. I'm pretty... But there come, you'll come a moment, and here's, I think, how I'd describe it, where I feel like if I didn't try, I'd be disobedient. I need to try. I need to knock on this door. I need to take this step. And if I don't, I'm holding back out of fear. You know what? Am I describing it right? You know the feel? We won't wait for all the resources we'll need to be in place before we start. If you do that, you'll never move. If you're one of those people that says, when I get rich someday, then I'll serve God. You'll never serve God. We'll take the first step that's in front of us, and then the next, and at some point we'll feel his great arms lifting us up and carrying us, making the impossible possible. I would describe it this way. It's like water skiing. I, I don't know if you've water skied, but I grew up water skiing as a, as a boy in northern Minnesota. And that water won't hold you. But if you hang on to the rope and not let go, assuming all is in order, <laughs> there's points where you must let go, you'll find that the water grows firm under your feet. Doesn't it? And it's like that with walking with God. You just step out. I, and you think, how's this going to work? I, 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 water doesn't hold people up. And what you'll find is, all of a sudden, it's grown firm under your feet. There's, 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 there's wings that are holding you up. There's arms that have got a hold of you. And you're walking in a miracle. And, and you would never go back. It's the, it's the way to live. He's our provider. 
Let me ask this. What is he asking you to do? What's holding you back? Now stop and think. Has he been faithful to you in the past? Will you trust him to provide for you in the future? Would you stand with me? Blessed be God. Lord Jesus, we've, 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 we've just had breakfast in Galilee. We've joined the disciples and watched you promise to them, I am your provider and I will be with you and where I guide you, I will provide for you. And we ask, Lord, that that lesson would go deep into every heart. We are all your disciples. We love you, Jesus. We have given you our lives. We have trusted you as our Lord and Savior. And the days you have given us, the, 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 the situations you've placed us in, all are full of need. And we ask you to show us, lead us forward. We are yours. And Lord, we are saying to you, we will not allow finances, money to hold us back. We won't be presumptuous. We won't be foolish. But if we know you're asking, if you're asking us, knock on the door and see what I'll do. We will knock. We will step. We will trust those great arms to lift us up and provide for us. Come, Lord, free us. If there's any one of us who's, af- who's afraid and who's, who's held back, just set us free. May the, may the word today go into us deep and, and show us the faithfulness of our Lord. I'll take that lesson too, Lord. Wherever I'm afraid, wherever I've held back, I ask you to apply it to me. I want to be all I've been called to be. I want to, I want to go wherever and do whatever you've asked us to do. We belong to you, Jesus. And you are a lovely provider. Now, if anybody is just in your own heart right now, just needs to say, Lord, I have heard you. I'm at that place where to, um, to not try would be disobedient. I'm going to knock on the door and see what you do. The Lord just says, I'm with you. I'm with you. Watch what I do. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.